Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Ayala, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Cancer in the Workplace, Understanding Your Legal Protections. And this is a very important program today, and I, I really um, am delighted with all of your response to the program today. And this is part three of a five-part series on Life with Cancer, A Guide to Getting the Best Care. And this particular workshop focuses specifically on workplace issues and all of the workplace issues that you need to be aware of um, to really maximize your experience at work. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And really, because of that collaboration, we have been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have over 522 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada and the United Kingdom. So really, um, it's a credit to all of you to be on this call, and also it's a bit of a global call as well. Now, today's program is supported by AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, the Celgene Corporation, Decatur Oncology, an educational donation provided by Amgen, and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them all for their support of this program and also for their corporate collaboration in making this program possible, and not just today's program, but this entire five-part series. Now, we have really the best of the best speakers today. I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawa. Dr. Grawa is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grawler is going to address understanding the meaning of work, talking with the healthcare team about work, and managing your cancer treatments while working. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grawler. Well, hello, and, and thank you, Carolyn. Uh, so I'm Richard Grawler, a medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center in New York. I have the pleasure, really, of introducing this program, which will discuss many aspects of work and having cancer. We have a great knowledgeable panel for today's program, as Carolyn said, and I think that the information will be helpful, useful, and thought-provoking. In introducing the program, I see my role as one to communicate the medical oncologist's view of work in cancer. First, a major and unifying goal in cancer care and in recovery is to assist people in pursuing their normal lives as close as possible to how they would have done so if not for the cancer. And while that's a very general goal, we have to realize that individualizing care for each person is key. So individuals have differing cancers, differing physical and emotional status, different work environments, and different aspirations. All of these need to be taken into account on a personalized basis as we discuss work in relation to living well with cancer. Since the focus needs to be on the individual, it's key for you to utilize and discuss issues, frankly, with your healthcare team, your, your doctors, nurses, so, social workers, psychologists, and others. You know, there's a misperception seen by some people that if a person has cancer or is receiving anti-cancer treatment, that going to work is not possible. This is by no means true for many, many people. 
whether going to or returning to work is a good decision is a bit complicated. Among many considerations are one's health status, personal views, employment realities, and legal issues. We're very fortunate to have uh, Deborah Wolf on the call to inform us of the many legal and regulatory concerns, and I'll look forward to learning more from her concerning those issues. Your cancer team typically determines what we describe as a person's performance status. The most time-honored scale for this is called the Karnofsky performance status, and even 65 years after it was established, it is still useful and accurate. And the top three or four categories use work as a criterion. It ranges from zero to 100, with 100 being in perfect condition from a medical and cancer standpoint. The next lower category, 90, means that there's some signs or symptoms of cancer, but the person is capable of working full-time. 80 means that work is possible, but probably on a part-time basis. And a score of 70 is generally defined as the person is able to take care of their own needs at home, but not quite capable of going to work. Probably the majority of patients that we meet can be described as being in those four categories. So indeed, many people are either working or able to work or close to being able to work, given that they're in a working age. Clearly, these performance status categories need to be seen in the context of the individual and the individual's treatment. If a person has a pretty physically demanding job, then can considerations be giving to, given to working part-time, or could that person temporarily be on desk duty for a period of time? Could arrangements be made for the individual to be off on treatment days or maybe working two or three days a week would be reasonable and quite productive, especially given that the person may very well have a long-time work experience. All of this should be discussed with your healthcare team who can be helpful in many ways, especially by putting your treatments in context. Such issues as how long will the treatment continue? What are the likely time requirements? What considerations would be right for me concerning extra rest? What are my options of treatment choices? Will proper supportive care, which is so important, help me avoid side effects that could otherwise interfere with pursuing normal activities and work? Treatments vary greatly and have often changed quite a lot in modern cancer care. It may be that past experience of friends or relatives with cancer treatment, including surgery or radiation or chemotherapy, are really very different today. Again, individualizing care is key. This helps to have as positive an effect as possible on, uh, on achieving uh, all the aims of the, of the treatment and will contribute to preserving and improving quality of life as well as maximizing benefit. And this also can lead to accurate expectations around work and work issues. So discussion and communication with your healthcare team can be really helpful in many aspects when considering work. There are always questions such as, what about telling others about my cancer treatment? What do I wish to share? What should I share? Can the human resources staff at my workplace be helpful? There are many considerations that need to be individualized and that, that can fit with your personality and goals. These are some of the workplace challenges that Ms. Nugent will uh, address in her presentation. So it is clearly very important to know a fair amount about one's cancer treatment as well as one's rights when beginning such discussions. At least for the illness and treatment aspects, your healthcare team can be quite uh, can be quite helpful. On a recent cancer care teleconference, I thought it was useful to discuss the 
emerging and, and relatively new term called precision medicine. While many definitions are possible, one that I think works well comes from the National Institutes of Health and states that precision medicine is an emerging approach for disease prevention and disease treatment that takes into account a person's individual variations in genes, in their environment, and in their lifestyle. Certainly, many of these are considerations that relate to work and many other activities while receiving cancer treatment or during recovery and living well. I'll now turn the program back to Carolyn Messner, and we'll look uh, forward to the presentations of Ms. Wolf and Ms. Nugent. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grawler. As always, this is just an amazing setting the stage for the program today, really introducing this topic and also, uh, also the whole concept of working with your healthcare team around these issues as well. Now, our next presenter is Deborah Wolf, and Ms. Wolf is an attorney. She's supervising attorney for Legal Health or New York Legal Assistance Group, NILAC. And Ms. Wolf has spoken on many of our programs and delighted to have her here today. And she's going to cover a yeoman's part of actually many of the legal protections that exist. So I'm going to just review some of the things that she'll be addressing, and then she will do them in, with great skill. And so stay tuned. Um, understanding, And we will be sending you also information based on some of this information that she presents as well. And um, if she gives any websites or information, we will, you'll all be getting that information as well. So understanding your legal protections in the workplace and by that, we mean the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, Family Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, and Intermittent FMLA, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, state and local laws. She will also be addressing disclosure and communication with human resources, supervisors, and coworkers. She'll be discussing COBRA, Continuation of Insurance Benefits if Employment Ends. And lastly, she'll be address addressing disability, and that includes short-term, long-term, Social Security Disability, or SSD, and Supplemental Security Income, or SSI. So this is um, a large area that she's addressing. I'm going to delightfully turn this program over to Ms. Wolf, and, um, and stay tuned. She has lots to share with you. Ms. Wolf? Thank, thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm so pleased to be a part of this teleconference to discuss legal protections in the workplace. I'm going to give an overview of the laws that protect people while still working and also if they need to take a medical leave. I'll also talk about what to do if you believe you're being discriminated against at work or have to stop work due to illness. So my focus will be on federal laws that apply to all 50 states, but I do urge everyone listening to also become familiar with your state laws as they often expand on the federal laws. And I'll give some examples as we go forward. Uh, before I discuss the applicable laws, I want to urge everyone, if you are working, to make sure to review the specific policies of your employer for medical leave and disability pay. Every employer should provide a summary of company policies and benefits. And these policies must comply with the laws I'll be discussing, but in some cases, they may even offer a greater benefit. So I'm going to begin with a law I'm sure most of you have heard of, the Americans with Disabilities Act, or as often called the ADA. This is a federal law that applies to all 50 states to everyone who works for an employer with 15 or more employees. To be eligible for protection under the ADA, you must have a disability, which is defined as having an impairment as a result of your diagnosis 
that substantially limits a major life activity, such as walking, working, eating, or sleeping. The ADA was recently amended to give a much broader definition of what is considered a disability and even includes illnesses that have gone into remission, such as cancer. So as a result, cancer is covered under the law as a qualified disability in most cases. The ADA has two main benefits. The first benefit is that it requires an employer to make reasonable accommodations when requested by an employee. This allows an employee to go to human resources or their boss, if no human resources, and request a modification of their work schedule, work environment, or company policies. What is reasonable is determined on a case-by-case -case basis, but an employer must grant the request unless it creates an undue burden, which is a very tough burden for the employer to establish. Even extra cost is not always an undue burden. Some common accommodations I have helped people set up include the following, a later work start time due to side effects of medication, a shorter work day, or an extra break during the day to rest. I recently assisted a writer set up a schedule that allowed her to work from home three days per week. But it's important to remember that you have to be able to do the essential functions of your job, so working from home may not always be an option for everyone. A job transfer to a less strenuous position can also be an accommodation, but if there are others waiting in line for the same position, the person requesting the accommodation doesn't get priority status, they have to wait until they're first in line. Now, there's no set list of accommodations, and I tell clients just to really think about what might help them do their job better. There's a terrific website called the Job Accommodation Network. It's at askjan.org, and they provide detailed information and actually suggest common accommodations um, for, for different types of jobs. So it's, it's a terrific resource to take a look at. Now, the employer can't refute. Sorry. Oh. Oh, sure. Could you repeat it's that? Ask, yes. yes, of course. It's askjan, A-S-K-J-A-N.org. Stands for Job Accommodation Network. Now, the employer can't refuse an accommodation, but, but they can negotiate. You know, they can say, I'm not sure this will work, but let's talk about what will work for both of us. It has to be an interactive process or a discussion. And if you have an accommodation already in place, but need something different, it's always modifiable. Now, the employee must request the accommodation, and generally the employer is not allowed to ask if an employee is disabled or needs accommodations. So this puts the burden on the employee to come forward, and it's important to do this if you feel that your illness or treatment is impacting your work. We'll talk a little later about discrimination, but an employee may have a legal claim against their employer if they refuse to approve a reasonable accommodation, but only if the accommodation is requested and the employer is aware of the disability. I always suggest that the accommodation request be made in writing with a letter of support from your doctor certifying that the accommodation is medically necessary. I also suggest that the letter state that the employee is able to perform their job tasks. Any medical letter you provide to support your request must remain confidential and in a separate file outside of your regular employee file. 
The second ADA benefit is that the law prohibits discrimination against an employee because of a disability or a perceived disability. This includes in hiring, firing, demoting, or harassment. Also, if a person is able to do their job and has an accommodation, an employer can't take action that adversely affects their job, such as termination or demotion, if the reason is based on the disability or accommodation. An employer can still address performance issues or other non-disability related concerns, and I'll talk a little bit more about discrimination shortly. The next law I want to discuss is the Family Medical Leave Act, often called FMLA. And FMLA applies to employers with 50 or more employees, and to be covered, you must have worked at your job for 12 months and for 1,250 hours in the last year. I calculated that that comes out to just about 30 hours per week. The employer gets to choose if they want to use a 12-month calendar year or, as most do, start the 12 months running from the date FMLA is requested. If an employee qualifies, they're entitled to 12 weeks of job-protected leave every 12 months. It's unpaid leave, but it can be supplemented with sick time or short-term disability. Employee benefits such as health insurance must continue for 12 weeks, although you must continue to pay any contribution made for the premiums. Now, FMLA also allows for intermittent leave, which may include a few hours a week for treatment or a doctor visit. So as an example, an employee with treatment every other Thursday can request FMLA leave every other Thursday afternoon, and even Friday if a day is needed to recuperate, especially if all your sick time is used up. With FMLA, your job will be protected for up to 12 weeks' worth of time. So this is an excellent benefit for someone who's all their sick time and is worried about losing their job or is being threatened by a supervisor for excessive absences. Also, check your state laws, as many states now have paid or protected leave policies, even if you don't qualify for FMLA. FMLA requires that a form be completed by your doctor certifying that you have a serious medical condition and you should give your employer as much notice as possible, but the law recognizes that sometimes emergencies come up and notice is last minute. Now with the ADA, you can only request the benefits such as accommodations for yourself with very limited exceptions. Under FMLA, time off can be requested to care for yourself a family member such as a spouse or child as well. If your FMLA protected time off is used up and you think you may be able to return to work shortly, additional time off may be requested as a reasonable accommodation under the ADA. Also, if you work for a smaller company, less than 50, and don't qualify for FMLA, time off for treatment can be requested as a reasonable accommodation. Now, the request must be reasonable, and again, there's no set guidelines, and what is reasonable is determined on a case-by-case -case basis. Some courts have even held that a year's leave is reasonable. And then when you do return to work, you can actually communicate with HR and try and set up any needed reasonable accommodations in advance of your return. So I also want to briefly discuss disclosure under the ADA and as it relates to discrimination. Disclosure is a very personal choice and you should have the right to determine who and under what circumstances you want to disclose your health issues. 
and I always urge caution when disclosing to coworkers and supervisors. Now, under the ADA, there are three distinct disclosure phases. The first is pre-employment or while applying and interviewing for jobs. Now, during this period, employers can't ask any direct health or disability questions. They can't ask you if you're disabled, although they can ask if you can perform the duties of the job. An employer can't require you to take a medical exam before you're offered a job. And I usually suggest that if someone needs an accommodation, get the job first and then request the accommodation. Now the next phase is the pre-employment job offer. Following a job offer, an employer can condition that offer on your passing a required medical exam, but only if all entering employees for that category have to take the same exam. So in other words, certain people can't be singled out. Now during this period, employers may ask you to complete medical questionnaires or have a medical exam, and you must be truthful in responding. However, an employer can't revoke a job offer because of information about your disability revealed by the medical exam as long as you can perform the essential functions of the job with or without a reasonable accommodation. But they can renege on the job offer if you provide false information, so truthfulness is important. Now, very few employers actually make job offers with a medical review. Often, it's medical facilities that need to ensure the safety of their patients by inquiring about communicable diseases or airlines when hiring flight attendants for safety, but any company can adopt this policy. Most have not. Once you are working, your employer can't require that you take a medical exam or ask questions about your disability unless they're job-related and necessary for the conduct of your employer's business. Employees in jobs that involve public safety, such as a firefighter or, firefighter or a bus driver, may have more job-related inquiries than, say, someone who works in an office. And my general advice is only to disclose when required, and this would be if you need an ADA accommodation or time off under FMLA. Often, coworkers and supervisors are not your friends, and they become concerned about how your illness will affect their own job performance such as a supervisor who needs to make sure you complete a certain project or make a quota if you work in sales. If you must disclose for an accommodation or for FMLA, go to Human Resources if you can, as they should understand these laws that protect you, and many supervisors do not. Often, an employee will ask their supervisor for an accommodation, and the reply is, oh, we don't do that here, or that's just not possible because they don't understand your rights and their responsibilities under the law. But even with these legal protections, discrimination does exist. If someone's working and believes they're being treated unfairly, they should first try to resolve through human resources. HR employees are trained in these laws and should understand your rights and try to help you resolve. If the current concern remains unresolved, a person can file a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, which enforces the ADA. An EEOC complaint generally must be filed within 180 days, but this varies by state law, so a person should act quickly. The EEOC will investigate the complaint to determine if it has merit and may conduct a hearing if they believe there was discrimination. They can also issue a right to sue letter so you can file a court case. 
an EEOC complaint and this right to sue letter are required before filing a lawsuit for discrimination under the ADA. If you want to file a lawsuit without your right to sue letter, it will be dismissed. This is one area in which I also suggest you check your state laws. For example, in New York, our city and state human rights laws mirror the ADA, including reasonable accommodations, but apply to employers with four or more employees offering protections to a broader group of people. So if you feel there is discrimination, I also urge you to talk to a lawyer before taking any legal steps so that you fully understand your rights, as the law is very complicated. Being treated unfairly may not always be discriminatory if you have a boss who treats everyone the same way. Some bosses just aren't nice bosses, but their conduct may not be illegal. So I want to review and summarize practical solutions a summary of what I've discussed so far. And the first is to understand your benefits, read your summary of benefits, and understand your employer's medical leave policy. Many employers and unions offer more generous time off policies than under FMLA. Second, use human resources or talk to an attorney if you feel you're being discriminated against. Be proactive to avoid any adverse action as a result of the discrimination. Coworkers and supervisors often have to be educated about the laws we discussed. And that's not our job. That's the role of human resources. Think about any accommodations that might help you in your job. And think of a and seek a letter of medical support from your doctor. And I think Dr. Grala really mentioned some excellent points to keep in mind as you as you think about this. And then finally, think carefully of who you might disclose to. I want to stress that I speak to many people who are working through their treatment and have employers and coworkers who are incredibly supportive. So I don't want to give the impression that there's always problems. It's up to the individual to decide if disclosure is needed, and I just urge everyone to think it through and do what's best for them. Now, even with all the protections I've discussed, there's times when a person needs to take time off from work. This could be short-term or longer for surgery or side effects from treatment or your illness. And the most common concerns I hear are regarding health insurance and continuation of income, so I want to address these. Now, as I mentioned earlier, FMLA requires that your employer maintain and pay for health insurance for 12 weeks, and some employers expand this, so make sure to talk to HR. Now, if a person can't return to work and receives a notice of termination, they have a right under a law called COBRA to continue their health insurance as well as for anyone in the family covered for at least 18 months. COBRA applies to employers with 20 or more employees, but again, check your state law. In New York, we have a state COBRA law that applies to employers with four or more employees and gives the benefit for three years. With COBRA, you now have to pay the full premium with no employer contribution, but you do get to pay at the lower group rate. And if you're approved for Social Security disability during the COBRA period, you can extend COBRA from 18, um, 18 months to 29 months but you must let them know as soon as the approval is made.
Now, the rules regarding COBRA and Medicare, for those of you who may be eligible for Medicare, are very complicated. So make sure to speak to an attorney or check your insurance policy if you're eligible for COBRA as well as Medicare. Now, as for income replacement, there may be a number of options available. Five states, California, Hawaii, New York, New Jersey, and Rhode Island, as well as Puerto Rico, require employers to offer short-term disability protection. Although this is good news, the benefit is often much less than the salary and not a livable wage. But many employers also offer private short-term disability plans. These are generally for 26 weeks and pay a percentage of income. If you can't return to work within the 26-week period, you may also have a long-term disability policy through work, so important to check your benefits. If an employer offers long-term disability, there's generally a 26-week wait period for benefits, and the amount is based on a percentage of salary, usually about 60%, and it's a tax-free benefit if the employee has paid the premium. It's important to review the policy before applying so that you understand all of the benefits and qualifications. There's also the option of applying for a Social Security Disability Benefit, and there are two, Social Security Disability and SSI. Both are based on an applicant's inability to work, not just at their particular job, but in any capacity. So you have to establish that you can't perform the same work as before disability or other types of work. And you have to show that it's likely that your disability is expected to last at least one year. Along with establishing disability, social SSDI, which is Social Security Disability of Eligibility, is based on a work history. You have to have sufficient work credits, and this will determine the amount you receive. Right now, the maximum SSDI benefit is about 2600 For somebody without a work history, SSI may be available, but has income and resource limits. An applicant can't have resources over 2000 for a single person or 3000 for a couple. Now, SSDI has a 26-week wait period from the onset of disability to the start of benefits. SSI has no wait period. The maximum SSI benefit in 2017 is $735, although some states do supplement that amount. So for both LTD and SSD, or SSI, it's critical to talk with your doctor to make sure he or she will certify that you're unable to work as a result of your cancer diagnosis or treatment. I want to mention that there's a special Social Security program called Compassionate Allowances, which allows for an expedited approval, and many cancer diagnoses are included on the Compassionate Allowance list. A person can apply for SSD online on the Social Security website, and you can also open account to see if you qualify and how much your monthly payment would be. I know this is a lot of information, and I encourage listeners to take the time to educate yourselves about these laws and your state laws that do offer protection, and seek out resources such as cancer care to have a better understanding of your rights and responsibilities. I want to end by briefly mentioning that there is a National Cancer Legal Service Network, a group of attorneys like myself who offer free legal advice, help to people with cancer. 
and you can check to see what help may be available in your state. And that website is nclsn.org. And I'll repeat that, nclsn.org. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Deborah. That was really amazing and a lot of information. And I do want to remind everybody that in addition to our live call today, this program by tomorrow will be on 24-hour-a-day telephone replay as well as be available to all of you as a podcast for those of you who like to listen to the recording online. And so, and you can download the the program as well. So just to be aware of that, um, it's, it, you may want to listen to it again. You may want to listen to it with family. Um, you, it just, and it's, you can listen to it anytime. There's no limit on the number of times you can listen to it. Um, and, um, and also the resources that Deborah has provided, those will all be sent out to all of you. Um, and when you get an evaluation, some of you will get your evaluation online, on a, as an online packet, e-packet, and others will get it as a paper packet depending on how you registered. And you'll get that information so you'll have it as a resource to use as well. Um, so um, thank you so much, Deborah. And there will be questions for you definitely during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Kathy Nugent. Uh, Ms. Nugent is an oncology social worker. And uh, Ms. Nugent is Cancer Care's Director of Regional Programs. And Ms. Nugent will be addressing solutions to address workplace challenges, tips for creating a plan to continue working, the importance of self-advocacy, and Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my colleague, Kathy Nugent. Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you, Dr. Grala, Deborah Wolf, and thank you to everyone participating in today's Connect Education Workshop. The diagnosis of cancer can be devastating. One's life is suddenly changed. The diagnosis can present physical, practical, financial, and emotional challenges. Patients often feel alone and experience a sense of loss of control. Cancer presents a crisis in the life of the patient and the family. But everyone handles a cancer diagnosis differently. There is no right way to handle it. How have you dealt with crisis in your life in the past? What has worked for you? What has not worked? What are your strengths? Taking a look at a past crisis in one's life and how you utilized your coping skills at the time can be very helpful in dealing with your cancer crisis now. Focus on what you can do rather than what you're not able to do. Use those strengths and successful past strategies. Examine your support system. Who can you turn to for support? Is it a family member, a friend, coworker? Look at the role each person has in your life and how they may be able to assist you when workplace decisions and other practical concerns come along. Each person can play a role in your recovery. You may also consider reaching out to one of the many cancer support organizations like Cancer Care to speak to a professional oncology social worker who can provide support and guidance throughout your cancer journey. Working during your cancer treatment or returning to work after completing treatment can be one of these challenges. Remember that cancer can have a profound life-changing effect. A new normal is created. I have seen many cancer patients throughout my career rush back into the workplace expecting everything to be the same. Many are surprised and disappointed. Many find that their priorities have changed. Take it slow. Listen to your body. You may have to adjust your work pace to work with your new normal. 
evaluate your readiness to work. Can you work part-time or full-time? If you can manage part-time, what kinds of accommodations need to be made? Once you have decided to go back to work, part-time or full-time, work out a schedule with your employer. Here are a few tips to help you face the challenges of the workplace. Discuss your work plan with your doctor and or your healthcare team. If you need to work during treatments, share this information with your doctor. Maybe your treatment protocol and schedule can be adjusted to accommodate your workplace needs. Discuss with your medical team any side effects you may have as a result of your treatment. How can you manage these side effects while working? Your medical team can be very helpful in providing useful information and support with this issue. Who to tell about your diagnosis? It really depends on your individual comfort level and your own personal experience at work. Who are you comfortable telling and who can you provide and who can provide support? You may feel uncomfortable, but you do need to tell your boss. You will also want to talk to human resources to learn about your company's policies. HR can be helpful to you in how to communicate with others at your workplace. As mentioned earlier, slow your pace, take work breaks, set priorities, take care of one's responsibility, one responsibility at a time rather than multitasking. Set attainable goals. Set small goals at first to help make the adjustment back to the workplace easier. Write down your priorities and goals and cross out as you accomplish each goal. Smaller goals can be more attainable. Delegate whenever possible. Remember, work can be a positive distraction and can help to give you a better sense of control in your life. As mentioned earlier, speaking to a professional social worker can be helpful during your adjustment back into the workplace. I'd also like to just mention that Cancer has been thrilled to work with Deborah Wolf and her legal team at New York Legal Assistance Group. Um, any cancer care patient and their caregivers living in the New York City area can receive free legal assistance through the Palliative Care Advocacy Project and the clinic's focus on assisting clients with health care-related legal needs. For more information about this program, if you live in New York City, please contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-HOPE-HOPE of 4673. Cancer and Careers is another great resource for concerns about work-related issues. And Cancer and Careers and the Harris Interactive conducted a survey back in 2015 to better understand the current needs of working people with cancer. Their survey found that the majority of cancer survivors and people living with cancer are eager to continue working but need support to balance their health and work demands. Support around survivorship issues is essential in order for people to thrive in their lives and workplaces post-treatment. And cancer care can help guide and support patients through many of these issues. Cancer care offers free practical support, education, and counseling services to patients and caregivers. Our oncology-trained social workers can be very helpful in setting an action plan and managing your new normal. If you happen to live in the New York metro area, our social workers can meet with you in one of our regional offices in Connecticut, New Jersey, Long Island, or New York City. Telephone support is provided throughout the country through Cancer Care's Hope Line at 1-800-813-HOPE. 
The cancer experience can be an economic burden also. Limited financial assistance may be available from cancer care, and cancer care can help reduce the costs associated with transportation to and from treatment, home care, and child care. In addition, cancer care social workers can direct you to other resources in your community that may offer financial assistance and other support services. Cancer Care also has a full complement of publications available to you. You can go to our website at www.cancercare.org and order any publication free of charge. And lastly, the cancer experience often leaves us feeling alone. I would like to emphasize that you're not alone. Cancer Care is here for you. We provide help and hope to all cancer patients. At Cancer Care, people can gain emotional support insight and reassurance by participating in one of our free telephone and online support groups. All of our support groups are facilitated by professional oncology social workers. A support group can be an empowering experience for a patient or caregiver. Support groups provide a safe environment to share common issues and concerns. There may be participants in the group who have similar workplace issues and through sharing best practices and advice you can feel less alone and find strength from discovering new ideas and coping strategies from each other. More information about all of Cancer Care services at Cancer Care can be found on our website at www.cancercare.org or by calling and speaking to one of our professional oncology social workers by calling our helpline at 1-800-813-HOPE. And lastly, celebrate your strengths. Through the cancer journey, patients, caregivers face day-to-day challenges and discover new strengths and courage. Acknowledge this and celebrate. Be good to yourself. I'll end by sharing a quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. The hero is no braver than an ordinary man, but he's braver five minutes longer. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Kathy. That was wonderful, actually. Uh, very, uh, very, um, in, very helpful in terms of just the day-to-day um, getting back to work and, and things to consider, and also the bigger picture in terms of of things that people um, can think about in terms of who they are and working with one of our oncology social workers to help to identify what their particular needs are. Now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions, and I'm going to ask Ayala to explain to how to queue up for questions. I'm going to ask you to bring all of our speakers on board so that, indeed, everyone can help with addressing your questions. And um, we'll let the questions begin. If we don't get to your question, which is very possible, there are some of you that we may not be able to answer all the questions. At the end of the call, I'll give you very good suggestions of where you can get your questions answered. But for now, let's see how many we can take. Ayala? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question is from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Thank you so much, and Caroline, an excellent seminar as usual. I have two questions. First, being a social worker in an RN, I would like to know uh, what to say to a prospective employee since I'm on uh, disability uh, for six, seven, seven years now, how do I tell them I cannot work more than like maybe $700 a month? And that's really difficult to tell employees that. And also, secondly, when volunteering and you're on disability, am I protected with the American Disabilities Act for being dis- if I ever get discriminated against uh, volunteering, not working? That's a totally separate thing. Thank you. 
Well, thank you. Good questions, uh, Stephanie. Uh, Deborah, do you want to address these questions in a general way? And of course, Stephanie, um, yeah, can you address them? Sure. Well, let me, I'm going to address the second one first with respect to volunteering. So the ADA has a pretty broad definition of who is considered an employee, and a lot depends on do you go to an office for work, um, do you use the tools of your employer, you know, but generally volunteers are not considered employees, so they're not going to have a lot of the protections that I've talked about. Those are protections that are reserved for employees. So generally, and volunteers aren't going to be included in that. There may be other protections that volunteers have. For example, under our your city or state human rights laws, there may be protections, but generally it's not going to be under um, FMLA or um, the ADA. With respect to the first question, I think when you're mentioning the $700, you're referring to the fact that somebody on Social Security disability is able to work, but they have to earn under what Social Security considers substantial gainful activity, and that number um, amount goes up every year. It's a little bit more than $700. And... You know, again, remember that to be covered under the ADA, you have to be able to do the essential functions of the job. And so I think you really need to apply for jobs that are going to meet that criteria for you. I don't think a person can apply for a job that requires, you know, 40 hours a week, but say I can only work 20 hours a week because I have this, this you know, this, this maximum amount of income that I I, I can earn. Um, so I think you have to tailor your job search to, you know, to what your requirements are. Um, you know, you certainly can apply for a job, as I mentioned before, and ask for reasonable accommodations after you get the job. But again, you know, the, the, the key word is reasonable, and, and you have to think in advance of what's going to be reasonable here in terms of what I'm asking for. Great question. Thank you, Stephanie, um, and thank you, Deborah, for addressing that question. Um, and um, does anyone else want to comment on that question? Just okay. Um, so we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, so, and I'm going to address. I'm going to. I guess I'm going to give this question to Dr. Um, Guala to start with. I have a full-time job. How will side effects from my chemotherapy affect my ability to work? So, Dr. Guala, if you could address this in a general way, of course. Um, and um, I probably also asked Deborah to comment, but if you could just address it just in a general way in terms of side effects of right. chemotherapy. Of course, it's a key question. And uh, cancer care uh, under Carolyn's uh, leadership uh, does many different programs on different chemotherapy side effects. So the most important thing is to speak with your care team and say, given the treatment that you have for me that you've outlined, um, what side effects am I likely to have? Because there are many, many chemotherapy agents do not give side effects. Many give quite a few. And for many, we have great approaches. So, for instance, for the majority of people, we're able to prevent nausea and vomiting, which wasn't true a number of years ago. Um, some uh, treatments uh, put you at risk of low blood counts, which is very important. Others, not so much. So you need to discuss this carefully with your treatment team and tell them because it's in the context of work. 
and then ask, uh, you know, will supportive care, the uh, prevention measures, be likely to, to help this or not? They should be able to give you a good answer to that. And really frank questions, how's my energy level going to be? Here's the job that I do. Do you think I'll be able to do this full-time, part-time, perhaps working from home? Should I take some days off? All related to the Family uh, Leave Act, which was discussed, and other ways of talking uh, with uh, your employer. So take advantage of communicating carefully with your own team. Find out the real risk of side effects, what they might be, what's going to be done to prevent them, or if there are options for treatment, what those might be. So because this is such a big field, uh, prevention of side effects of chemotherapy, I can't give you an exact answer, except this is one of the clear reasons that you need to communicate carefully with your treatment team, and they should be very glad to discuss this with you. And then I'm going to just ask Deborah if you would comment um, in terms of both well, do you want to say more here about intermittent FMLA, or do you want to just address this in a general way in terms of workplace accommodation, just in terms of someone did indeed have some side effects that um, might require sure. some effect in, in workplace attendance sure. and things like that? So I think intermittent FMLA is actually, you know, the, the something that has to be looked at here. You know, I've talked about intermittent FMLA for scheduled doctor's appointments, but I've also helped clients who've requested intermittent FMLA on an as-needed basis. So basically they'll say, you know, I'm in treatment for cancer. I don't know how I'm going to feel. There may be a day that I'm not feeling well, and I won't be able to come in that day. And I won't be able to give you a lot of notice, but I'll give as much notice as possible. And this is protected leave. So, I mean, as long as it's set up as, as intermittent FMLA, if there is a day when you're not feeling well and don't think that you can meet the demands of your job, you're protected. The same with accommodations for those of you who might not be covered under FMLA, a reasonable accommodation could be there may be some days when I need to come in later. I'm not going to feel well enough to be at work at 8.30 or 9, but I should be able to come in at 11. Or, you know, taking it further, there may be some days that I'm just not well enough to come in. So really look at, you know, the laws that I went over in terms of FMLA and ADA you know, to see how these might protect you because both really can be used to make sure that you're not at risk of losing your job when you have to take, whether it's a few hours or a few days off. Excellent. Thank you. And um, uh, another online question, which from uh, Ms. Nugent, actually, um, uh, the question is, a friend and coworker was just diagnosed with inoperable type of cancer. As friend and boss, how can I best help? What should we prepare for? Could you, in general, just give some general guidelines around that, um, Kathy? In terms yeah. of just, um, sure. you know, um, what what? Because that's a question that often comes up. People wonder how involved should they be? What can they do? And they don't realize that there are all different levels of things that people can do to show that they're concerned. Wonderful. Yeah, and I think that that is a question that comes up frequently with um, people working in with with other employees and, and coworkers. Um, what to say, what not to say. Um, I think what you don't want to do is avoid that person. I think always um, um, 
learn as much as you can about the particular cancer um, and certainly welcome them back into the workforce. Um, again, um, sometimes we don't know what to say, but it's, it's not saying that can be more um, destructive to, to, the, to, the, to the person coming back to work. Um, sometimes doing little things, if, if the person is still not back at work, you may want to um, certainly send cards. I know we do a lot of emails, but there's nothing better than getting a card in the mail, um, thinking of you, um, hope you're doing well, um, looking forward to, to seeing you again. Um, meals, preparing meals. And again, sometimes, so many times, um, patients, uh, we don't know what to say or do, and sometimes we say, um, let me know if I can help. And sometimes we just need to do it. Um, send a gift basket of, of um, fruit. Um, prepare meals. There's wonderful programs like Meal Train, um, and that is an online program, mealtrain.com, where um, a community uh, can put together meals for, for patients. Um, and um, so everybody's not getting, giving lasagna um, every night of the week. Um, it is actually a wonderful tool for communities, employers to do, to, to share and provide meals for patients um, who are dealing with cancer. Um, and an addition thing, um, one of the things, just kind of piggybacking on what was discussed before, um, you know, when we want to talk to our doctors and, and ask about side effects and whatnot, I think it's really important also to um, talk to somebody about what are the questions I should be asking. And I always encourage patients to write things down. I'm a big believer in, in keeping journals and writing down um, concerns. And again, um, that is something that can be very helpful to not only our colleagues that are working with us, but um, um, our patients who are, who are, who are talking um, to, to their doctors about side effects and what can they expect. Um, I think that's one of the other things I did want to mention also is the meaning of work. To many of us, when we meet somebody for the first time, what's the first question that somebody says to us? It's, you know, what do you do? And I think sometimes that can put a lot of pressure on our patients. So um, we can help them to understand that there's, work is important, but we need to you know, look at it in context of, of our whole um, quality of life and, and what it is that's so, so important now um, after having a diagnosis of cancer, setting priorities, um, and when is the best time to go back to work and, um, you know, welcoming our, our employees back to, to our workplace. Well, thank you. Very, very helpful. And lots of wonderful information for people to kind of really um, absorb. So thank you so much. That was excellent. And we have another online question, um, which I'm going to give for, for Deborah. Um, what am, uh, Ms. Wolf, um, what are my rights if my child has cancer versus if I had been diagnosed? Um, Deborah, Ms. Wolf, could you address that question? It's an important one, certainly. Sure. And, you know, as I mentioned, um, FMLA leave can be taken for the care of a parent or child as well. So everything that I talked about in terms of FMLA, whether it's a longer 12-week period of leave or whether it's intermittent leave on an as-needed basis, perhaps you're coordinating with a spouse 
perhaps your child is still able to, you know, go to school and, and do a lot of things, but you need to be available for doctor's appointments or for treatment. Um, really, again, on a case-by-case basis, but FMLA is available for you to make sure that you're with your child as needed. Um, the ADA is generally not available for um, the care of a family member. Accommodations can't generally be requested to care for a family member. But I do want to say the law is evolving and changing, and there have recently been some new cases that have talked about um, the right of a family member to ask for accommodations at work for the care of a of a loved one, but it's generally not the you know not the law. Um, the BADA wasn't set up that way. So, but but definitely using Family Medical Leave Act. And again, the other thing I encourage you to do is just talk to your employer. I think, um, as I said. Most of the employers that we've worked with have been very accommodating, very understanding. I think most people have been touched by cancer or in one way or another in their lives, and they're very much willing to work with their employees to, you know, to make sure that they're able to take care of whether it's themselves or their family members. So talk to your employer as well. Excellent. Thank you. Um, I hope that's helpful. Um, and um, and then um, for the last question, um, and I'm going to direct this question um, to uh, Ms. Nugent. Uh, my coworkers know I have cancer and are acting differently around me. I know this probably isn't a legal issue, but is there anything I can do to help things go back to normal? I guess I should first comment, ask Deborah, is it a legal issue or not? Is as to people asking well, asking that? It, it it can become a legal issue. So it can become a legal issue when fellow employees get too nosy. It can become a legal issue when somebody has an accommodation and other employees become concerned that somebody might be, you know, not putting in their fair share. I've had um, clients who have received email from fellow employees saying things like, why do you get to leave at 4 o'clock when we have to be here till 6? If that becomes an issue it's important to talk to HR. They're the ones that are responsible for enforcing the law and making sure that their employees have no um, no impact, detrimental impacts from their accommodation requests. Um, you know, I talked about disclosure, and I just, again, would urge everybody listening to think about who you are going to disclose to. You are protected when you talk to HR about your health issues. You're not protected when you talk to your coworkers. You're not protected even when you talk to your boss. If you tell them that you have cancer, they can tell everybody else and there's no legal protections. And I think the downside to that is, as I said, disclosure is a very personal choice and it takes that choice away from you as to who you want to tell and who you want to know. If I could just comment uh, on that also, I think that's all very good advice. But if you feel confident in doing so, I would take aside uh, uh, those individuals who seem to be uh, treating you differently and uh, and one at a time. And I would say, look, I really appreciate your concern, but you know, I'm I'm not uh, fragile. I'm I'm me, and 
I think it would be great if we can just uh, continue on just as we always have. Something like that, mm-hmm. a nice person-to-person discussion, because often people do not know how to act to you, mm-hmm. and the way to act to you is the way you really are. It's not I, easy I, to do. I, yeah, Dr. Yeah. Rella, I would, I would agree with you. I'm, I was going to say one of the things that, you know, um, if these are your colleagues and and they are your friends also, many times we spend more time at work than we do at home, open a discussion and just ask, you know. Right. Um, a lot of times our, uh, people don't know how to react or act, and um, I think, you know, just being out there and being able to talk about it can make a big difference, huge difference. Well, this has been an extraordinary call. I want to thank, first of all, our speakers have been extraordinary. It's an amazing call, actually. It's one that we, we try to do once or twice a year, but I, I realize today's call was particularly um, amazing, I have to say. I want to thank all of you. And really good and wonderful substantive information that also we hope you can all use and and apply as, in, in, as you as you negotiate your your experience with cancer in the workplace. And I also want to thank all of our participants who actually really asked such great online questions, um, which really allowed our speakers to, of course, expand on topics that are relevant to everybody on the call. So um, I, I do want to thank you all. Now, I did say that if I didn't, we didn't get your questions, I would actually give you some resources that you could utilize to get your questions answered. So although this technically isn't a, uh, there weren't a lot of medical questions, there could be some. And I, I would say that if anyone does have a medical question, of course your healthcare team. I think we n- never want you to sidestep your medical team. They are a, a essential, and they do have a multidisciplinary nature to them. So today's call was many different disciplines, and often in when you're going to see your healthcare team, those disciplines exist there as well. But for anyone who has a medical question, in addition to your medical team, wish to get some additional answers, I recommend calling the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237 or visit their website at www.cancer.gov. And they actually have a live chat feature. So for people both in the U.S. and internationally, it's a wonderful resource where you can post a question and the information specialist will really help to walk you through it and give you resources. Also, we will be sending out to you a lot of resources based on today's program, based on a lot of the topics that were covered, so that you'll have that information as well. And for people on the call who actually would like to actually access the service of cancer care, then I do suggest you go ahead and call Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673 to speak with one of our trained clinical oncology social workers, or actually you can also come to our website if you prefer, www.cancercare.org, and post your question or concern. And again, our staff will work with you, um, you know, addressing your questions um, online as well. Either way, we're here for you, and I think, as um, Kathy said, we don't want any one of you to feel you're alone, that we are indeed, um, this organization is really um, wants to help you. We also have many resources to bring to bear to help you as well, so don't hesitate to call, um, and I know there are all moments when people feel terribly alone in, in coping and and feeling like there's no one in their town or no one quite dealing with the situation they have or in their workplace, and so you do have a place to call where you can connect with people who, and we do have all these wonderful support groups, telephone and online support groups as well. So with that being said, um, now there is a part four to this program, and it's titled Participating in Decisions About Your Care, and we also will have a part 
uh, 5, which will actually be a program specifically for caregivers, but it is open to everybody as well. So, um, and it's on care coordination. So also people themselves may feel like, I'm my own caregiver, so I need to be on that call too. And that's going to be on June 14th. So we have a lot of programs coming up yet, and you'll be getting information about those. Again, I want to wish you all for your participation today. Um, thank you, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a good day.